All right, we are in Matthew chapter 13, and last week we started looking at the parable of the sower and the parable of the tares, or the weeds. And uh, I told you to take a look at that so that we could uh, include that in our discussion. Now remember that the uh, text is Jesus begins speaking in parables. They ask him why he's speaking in parables, and he tells them, that in some sense it's for people not to be able to understand. And the reason for that is the context of this is Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah as God speaks to Isaiah. He says uh, that these people will see with their eyes but not perceive, hear with their ears but not understand. In other words, it will happen right in front of them, but they'll have no idea what's really going on. So Jesus says in the parables, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples ask him why he's using parables, he says, because they, in other words, he's making a distinction between his disciples. To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but it isn't given to them. Uh, They are the fulfillment of Isaiah, seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, lest they hear and see and turn. In other words, come back to obedience to God and I would heal them or I would save them. There is a period where Israel is in part hardening itself and in part being hardened by God, according to Paul, for the purpose of the Gentiles beginning to receive the blessings of Abraham that were commanded. So Israel's been in diaspora. They've come back, part of them, a remnant. There will be the gospel then will go back out with them after the temple is destroyed, back to the Jew first throughout the diaspora, also to the Gentiles. And then God will gather Israel back and will gather us as well. Isaiah makes all of this fairly clear, but it is not well understood Uh, at the time that Jesus is speaking. Not sure it's well understood now. So we're going to pick up with the explanation because these two parables, Jesus actually gives the explanation himself. It's a fascinating thing to me because I read books on the parables and it's amazing how many people interpret the parables different than Jesus. Now, I don't get that. You would think, I get the ones where he didn't interpret it. You could be... You know, you can slip and slide on that. But when he gives the interpretation, I think that's fixed, right? So uh, that's where we're going to look. So in verse uh, 18, uh, we pick up in chapter 13. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one who is... Whom the seed was sown by the road. So Jesus tells the story of the sower sowing the seed. Some of that seed falls on the road area. The road's trampled uh, quite a bit. The ground is very hard. Uh, The birds come and eat the seed. And there is no uh, production from the seed. And he says, when someone hears the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, but they are... uh, unable to understand, 
Even the word of God itself, the word of the kingdom, is stolen even further from them. And that is the work, Jesus says, of the evil one, uh, Satan. So he begins with that. Then he says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocking place, rocky place. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in him. Uh, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now this second group is a group that when they hear the word of God, are very excited about it. Very happy. They're, they're, they're shallow, but they respond quickly. They're joyful about it. But when the reality of living the word up against persecution or hardship of following the world or following the, uh, uh, the word, they fall away. There's an enormous lesson here for us to understand. Uh, I have always been bothered by evangelistic Christians who as soon as somebody makes a profession of faith, they go crazy. Now, The scripture says the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. So I'm all for that. But the assumption then that because this person has made a profession of faith, they're going to continue is not a wise thing to say. There are many people, particularly in our culture, where the word of God has been watered down and watered down and watered down so that there's very little that someone has to do. They can give the impression that their faith is deep and there's a root there when there really isn't. The testing of our faith is when the word says something different than what we want to do. The word says something different than what the culture tells us what to do. And we're stuck with having to say, are we going to be conformed to the world or are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that the root of our faith becomes deep towards uh, fruitfulness. And so that's this second group. It's a group that is happy about the word and still until the word actually has to be done. And then it's a problem. The third group is the one whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is the group that says just the opposite of what Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. This group is saying, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? How are we going to handle life? We have to get our act together first, and then we can follow God. And he says, your father knows you have need of these. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. In other words, this is the group that says it's not practical to go into biblical living until we get a certain part of our life in order based on our needs. Instead of seeing that God is the supplier of the needs. And so the word here also becomes unfruitful. Now what these three soils have in common. Is that the word does not produce fruit in their life. One, it produces nothing because they don't get it. They're clueless. One, 
becomes very joyful, but then it's not practical, and I'm not, and I don't want to be laughed at for being a believer, so they just kind of conform. And the third one says, I have to get my life in order, and then I can do this. And in those three situations, the word becomes un, uh, unfruitful. Now, the fourth one is the one on whom the is the good soil. This is the person who hears the word and understands it. This person knows that the word of God calls them out of the world, out of the culture, out of themselves to deny themselves to live in the community of faith awaiting the kingdom of God to come and that drastically alters the way they're going to live life. They understand it and they bear fruit. They come to maturity. They get a deep root of faith. They grow in grace and in knowledge. And I want you to notice something in what Jesus says here. They indeed bear fruit. They actually do become fruitful. That fruit is uh, a sign of maturity. I believe that the fruit of the Spirit is somewhat what is being mentioned here because the fruit of the Spirit are all the maturity items of the pathway of following the commandments of God led by the Spirit of God. And he says, some of them bring forth a hundredfold, some of them sixty, and some of them thirty. You can almost make an argument that there are three soils that produce nothing, and then there are soils that produce a hundred, sixty, and thirtyfold. Even among believers, even among those who are maturing, there is going to be a variability in our process. It's one of the things that I want us to be careful of at the Disciple Center. Many of us are turning from a bad foundation in the faith. And so we're, in a sense, playing catch-up. And our fruitfulness is not going to match maybe where someone else who's grown up in the faith and has had some maturity. And we've got to be careful about comparing ourselves in that sense. All organisms produce fruit at somewhat different levels. Just like in our families, some of you have more children, some of you have less children, but the issue is that the fruitfulness is there. And so uh, this, is not a, this is not a condemnation of those who are 30-fold or 60-fold. They're all included in the good soil. The good soil becomes fruitful. We don't compare our fruit with others. We compare whether we are fruitful or not in that context. And that's, that's an important part here. So, I'm going to now stop. We'll open it up to questions and discussion uh, as we've done. Yes, about fruit. Is fruit other believers? This is not a um, parable of reproduction. There are. This is not one of them. This is talking about the fruit that identifies what kind of plant it is. Apple trees produce apples, right? So the idea is that they become fruitful in their maturity. Animals and plants become fruitful. Animals would reproduce. That becomes their fruit. Trees, the fruit is there. There is some reproduction from that, but notice that most of the fruit of these plants 
is eaten and made into bread. It doesn't become other stocks, right? So I don't think that this uh, particular parable is talking about being fruitful by leading other people to Jesus. That's a classic evangelical parachurch explanation of this. It's not historically found uh, significantly in the in the mindset of the more Hebraic notion, because they already know they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply in that sense. This is about someone who hears the word of God and comes to maturity. Now, I'm not sure you can come to maturity and not reproduce. That's a norm, but that's not what this thing is talking about. It's, it's talking about the fruitfulness of a mature stock. And I think that's important because it connects to the other parable that we're going to see. Okay, yeah, I want to talk about that. So this is not, so we just said it's not new souls. It's also not necessarily good works. Though both of those are part of what a mature believer would do. This is really talking about the genuineness and the permanence of the believer. Remember the other soils don't continue. They end up stopping. One, they never grow. Others, they grow real quick looking like there's something, but then they wilt, right? And others uh, are caught in the choked so that they can't produce uh, fruit. So the comparison here is those who are fruitful abide. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit, right? So the idea is that you will come to maturity. And that's critical as we look at the next one. You mentioned something that's really important, and that is this is a matter of the mind and the heart. Now, again, this is a problem between the Hebrew worldview and the Greek worldview. The Hebrew worldview sees the lib, the heart, as the inner person. And that would involve all of the inner person, but particularly the mind and the reasoning capacity, because this is about understanding and doing and coming to maturity, growing in grace and in knowledge in that sense. The Greek mindset separates the heart and the mind from the, the, the emotions and the thought process. Our emotions are part of the lieb. They're part of the inner person. They don't control it, but they are part of it. So this is about the spiritual persons that we are. Hearing, understanding, growing in grace and in knowledge, coming to maturity because the word is internalized and energized by the Spirit of God, the Word and the Spirit working together in that sense. And ultimately, then, the Spirit is producing that fruit in us, which is evidence that we are genuine believers in in that sense. Okay, I'm going to move on to the other uh, parable, uh, which is uh, later in the chapter. We're going to revisit the mustard seed and the leaven next week. But I want to pick up the, uh, the tares. So verse 24. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. 
But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the uh, slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did we not sow good seed in your field? How, how does it have tares? Uh, and he said, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up and uh, gather the wheat uh, into my barn. Now, Jesus is going to explain this one as well. So we move down to verse 36 where Jesus gives the explanation. He then uh, left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That is, that's fascinating. Remember, it's the words of Jesus that are being sowed, not the four spiritual laws. We have simplified, we have homogenized, we have reduced these things to simple formulas. But Jesus said, the person who builds his life on my words, I'm going back to the Sermon on the Mount, he who hears my words and does them is a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And he who doesn't do them, when the storms of life come, is going to be damaged, right? So this is again, a, this is not just about salvation, it's about all of life in, in that context. So he says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the terrors are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is of the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Now this can't, can't be clearer, right? Who's the players? But you'll hear this thing told all other kinds of ways. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And He will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is clearly a reference to to the lake of fire, to Gehenna, right? Uh, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their fathers. He who has ears, let him hear. So, what is he talking about? There is a counterfeit in the kingdom of God. God is, Jesus' words are going to those who are wise... That wisdom is coming from God. They are building their house on a rock. They are preparing for the kingdom to come. They are not seeking this world, but the kingdom to come first. And they are waiting for the kingdom uh, wherein righteousness will shine. And in the midst of that, among those who name the name of God, who name the name of Jesus, are false believers. 
That will include false ministers. And remember what Paul says about them. They come as ministers of light. Satan's job is always to get you to follow the scriptures wrong. Not to reject the scriptures. To follow them wrong. That's what he did to Eve. He sows discord among the brethren. In other words, in the kingdom there are going to be two kinds of plants. Now the word here for tear is a weed that looks in its immaturity very much like a wheat stalk. So when they're growing side by side, you can't tell the difference. And so when the servants say, should we weed out the weeds? He says, no, because you might weed out one of the good ones. God is willing to endure the false stocks to preserve his good ones. But the time is coming, and it's at the end of the age, when he will send his angels and they will gather that group out and remove them from the kingdom so that the righteous ones will shine forth. Notice this is not about reproduction. It's about the genuineness and the fruitfulness that identifies who's a believer. Now, how do we know who's a believer? What ultimately is the the statement made by Jesus of what establishes a disciple of his? That you love one another. John says it this way. We know that we are of him because we believe in him whom God has sent, Jesus, and we love the brethren. Right? That is the issue. It doesn't say we have our doctrine straighter than the other one. We have more people than the others. It's none of those humanistic ways. It's about the authenticity of the believer themselves. So, what is happening is, among us there are tares. And among us there are true believers. We promote growth. We promote spiritual maturity. Because as one matures, it will become evident whether they are a true disciple or a son of the evil one. Now, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said, you are of your father, the devil. Now, he wasn't talking about all the Pharisees. He was talking about the hypocritical ones. What's the difference between a good Pharisee and a hypocritical Pharisee? The good Pharisee cleans the inside, the inner man. He hears and understands, and the outward expresses it. The hypocrite puts on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones. There are people who give the appearance of being believers, but it's a facade. They are play-acting. They are not genuinely struggling in the inner man with holiness and righteousness that they may grow in grace and ultimately grow up and be fruitful in the Lord. And that's what we have chosen to do. And so our job is not to be uh, weeders of the unbeliever. Though they're going to grow right alongside. But we are to make sure and certain 
of our salvation. Examine yourself, Paul says, whether you are in the faith or whether you have believed in vain. And the, the, that struggle is the struggle of trusting God, believing in Jesus, and learning to love the brethren. So we end up doing what the three great commandments tell us. We love God. We love our neighbor as ourself. And we love one another as he has loved us. All of the other commandments come out of those things. And that becomes not a facade to do to look good in front of people. But to do it honestly before the Lord. uh, Who sees in secret. And the one who sees in secret will hear openly. You notice I keep bringing you back to the words of Jesus. Because we are called Christians. We are not called Paulines. I am grateful for Paul, but if you use Paul to avoid the words of Jesus or to change the words of Jesus, you're abusing what Paul was trying to do. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And we have somewhat dichotomized those two, and I think that's a problem. So, we're now going to open up a discussion of the parable of the tares. We back on? So the issue is... How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love, but still we have to struggle with disagreements and issues and that kind of thing? I, I, I believe relationships are always messy. They, they always have been. So the issue is, let's say you and I get into a theological argument. What Satan would want is for you and I to use that to reject each other. What God wants us to do is to each be fully persuaded in our own mind, know where we disagree, but maintain the fact that we are committed to be brothers in the Lord, knowing that we might both be wrong, and when we get to the kingdom, we may find out that, you know, Jeff was right and we were wrong, right? Uh, So that's a different approach. We have, because of evangelism and because of apologetics, we have grown up with a, by their doctrine, you shall know them. Okay, But the Bible doesn't say, by their doctrine, you shall know them. Uh, Paul says, if I have all doctrine, I got that, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Right? So the ultimate issue here is for us to learn how to love each other, even though we may have disagreements and we may have, uh, have uh, very strong feelings about those. It is our unity in the spirit not our uniformity of doctrine and even of behavior that's important. And remember what love is, it's doing good for one another. So you and I might have a knockdown drag out. I had a, I had a friend, uh, Conrad, and we were, we were in the United Evangelical Church together. He came out of a strong Pentecostal background and I was really struggling against that at the time. And we got into arguments where one of us would get up on top of a desk and yell at the other one. I mean, it was just incredible. We were very crazy about this stuff. But it didn't divide the fact that I knew he was an authentic believer. He was struggling with his faith to follow God. And he was not using our disagreement to condemn me. He was trying to enlighten me. And I was trying to enlighten him. We were generating enormous heat and very little light. But the reality was, it didn't divide our unity as brothers in the Lord. Right? So I really think that's the key. Uh, 
and the way you do that is you look for the best in you you look for the best in the faith of the other one, not the worst of the faith. If you compare the best of your faith with the worst of someone else's, you're always going to win, right? If you compare the best of their faith with the worst of yours, you're always going to be humble. And that humility with one another is what I think is the basis of our unity ultimately in love. Back on? Yeah, okay. So at what point do we uh, not associate with each other, right? There, there are two levels of that. One level is, obviously, we congregate at the strongest level of common understanding of the faith, right? So there's a reason I'm not in a Catholic church this morning and a reason why I'm not in an Anglican church this morning, though I am in great alignment with much of those two churches, we at the Disciple Center and our covenant of faith and our understanding of a Judeo-Christian thing causes us to congregate to reinforce ourselves and our children and grandchildren in that context. At some point, there is a point at which we say, I can't walk with you in this, right? Uh, let's say somebody said, um, I believe that Jesus uh, has nothing to do with, with salvation, right? Or Jesus didn't come from the Father, he was just like a prophet. I, that's, that's over the line for me. So while I can't love that person as a brother... I can love them as a neighbor, right? So when the theological difference is such that I think they're not a believer, that's not a tear, okay? The tear is going to be the one among us who acts like us but really isn't inside, right? So the, the non-believer, the Bible says, can two walk together unless they are in agreement? So at some point, there is a line where we say that that's an unbeliever. So if a person tells me, I am a Christian, and then they hold to something that's a major issue, like the sexuality issues, okay? The scripture's pretty clear that I'm not to associate with them. That's 1 Corinthians 5. And it lists what those are about, right? We are not to allow them in the congregation, and that's why the two places that matter for this kind of stuff is your household and your congregation. I can do nothing about them where I work. I can do nothing about them where I eat. I can do nothing about them where I shop. I can do nothing about them where I vote. And therefore, I can simply love them as a neighbor, but not consider them a brother. Okay? I can argue against that view, right? Respectfully in that context. But in my household and in our congregation, we can hold those biblical lines. And Paul says, there must be factions among you. There will be differences that those among you who are approved might be manifest. Okay? In other words, we hold this line because we're holding it unto the Lord. And the Lord sees that and he will judge between us and them whether we are obeying his word correctly or they are obeying his word correctly. And that should give us pause. Because we, we're all happy that they're going to be judged. 
But we're going to be judged. Remember? And judgment begins at the house of God. God begins by judging his people. Then he goes to the unbeliever, right? That's why Israel was far more under the judgment of God than all the ungodly pagans throughout history. Because to whom much is given, much is required. That's a scary thing. So the question is, now this is a question that could be said of almost all scripture. To what extent do we keep it in its most literal and direct interpretation, which is always the starting place? And then to what extent can it be extended by allegory or another thing? I I am concerned when verses are sewn together and the contexts don't match then I would not do that. If the context... So, for example, if you find... We're going to talk about it next week when we look at the mustard seed. There's an interesting thing. Jesus quotes a text that talks about the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And people have all kinds of ideas about what that is. But he's quoting a text. I think we should go to that text, which is what we will do next week, right? So the danger is that people don't know... Uh, off, in, a, in the NASB, a lot of times, the, the, a text that is a direct quote is put in uh, bold or, or italics. I mean, not italics, but in its caps, so that, so that you know that it is. The problem is, they didn't do it with all of them. Because if they did it with all of them, there'd be very little text in the Gospels that isn't based on other texts. And there would be a lot less in Paul and James and Peter that isn't also. In other words, all the writers assume that you have a very, very good working knowledge of the Older Testament, which is no longer true among believers. And that's why people then can teach them inappropriately and use them incorrectly. So I want to I go back to, a, to answer this a little fuller. Let me go back to a text where the writer is doing that even here. So if you'll look at Matthew 13, you will see in verse 35, uh, well, verse 33, he spoke another parable to them, bypass that, verse 34 now, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to look at that text. And now go with me to Psalm 78. And I want to read Psalm 78, the first verses of that, up to about verse uh, 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 7. So that you get, Jesus says, Matthew uses one statement. He's kind of proof texting. It looks like he's proof texting, but he's not. He knows that when he says this, people will, most of them may even have this memorized, but they will know what it's talking about. 78, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Isn't that what Jesus is telling them to do? I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Notice that the quote that Matthew uses is not from 
this exact translation, but he's drawing from a textual variant uh, that's there. Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob. I love that verse. We give testimonies. You know, we have a section where we give testimonies. And I always say, and, and often Pastor Trevor says, we're telling what God is doing among us. Because it isn't your testimony. We are not testifying to us. God gave a testimony in Jacob. He interacted with Jacob. And in his interactions, he revealed who he was. In his doing for us, he reveals who he is. He is establishing his testimony in us. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that's obviously the Jews, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, and that they should put their confidence in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. All of that is triggered in the word, I will open my mouth in parables. And I will speak to them in parables. And I will speak of the things which God has done. And we will tell it to our children. They will tell it to their children. They will tell it to their children. Even the ones not born yet will tell it to their children. There's your reproduction. There is also the great commission to tell others. But the primary focus of reproduction is marriage and family in the people of God. And then we also... Tell those uh, beyond us. What's happening in the church, and this is scary to me. Uh, there was an article, I think in Christianity Today last week, that this young generation all want to work with children around the world, but they don't want to have any. That's odd. It's like the system that God has given is not good enough. We now have a world system to take care of all the children. Just scary. Just scary. Uh, hopefully, we will instruct our children and grandchildren in the ways of the Lord based on His testimony and based on His commandments, which is what, which is what we're trying to do. So, it's really important to understand that when you read the Newer Testament, it should be triggering all kinds of context from the Older Testament. And in doing so, it immunizes us from taking the text too far beyond the broader context. So I'm all for extension of the text as long as it remains within the framework of the biblical worldview and doesn't move over into the American worldview. This last week, Linda showed me a picture of me, and she and uh, Cheryl were asking me where it was, and I, for the life of me, could not figure it. First of all, I'm there. None of my family is there. There's a young man standing next to me. I'm at a pulpit standing there, and you can see that the ceiling is bad, and it's tore up and all this stuff, and I'm looking, I'm trying to figure it out, and then it dawned on me. That was in Moscow, 
when I took a four-day trip to go to Moscow with Dr. Ellis to sign papers between a Russian university and CBC at that time. And then they asked me to preach in a small Baptist uh, congregation that could not stay in their regular church building. They kicked out, so they had this little broken down place. And I had to have a translator because my Russian is really bad. And non-existent. So, uh, I was preaching. I remembered the sermon. I, they wanted me to tell them how they could be like the American church. And my sermon was, don't be like the American church. Follow the scriptures and become the church in Russia that God is redeeming. We have enough problems with the American church in America. And we've been exporting it through missions for a couple hundred years. And it is, it is causing all kinds of problems. Now, there, we are both sowing wheat and tares uh, because of, of those kinds of things. And so I think we have to work very hard to try to maintain a biblical focus in what we do. And that's why I don't want to move too far away from the text uh, in terms of its interpreting of itself and the connections that the Newer Testament makes to the Older Testament.